In Psalm 23, we really see this beautiful picture of King David, and he's saying, with the Lord, you can have a life without lack, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What I want us to look at tonight is there are different stages to us understanding that reality, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What we're going to look at tonight, maybe you've never heard of this before, but we're going to talk about the stages of the Christian faith. This, the last eight months or so, has been a concept that I've been learning about. Um, never have learned about it before. To be honest, it's not super popular in today's time. Uh, this was actually um, popular among Christian mystics. You don't have these stages that we're going to talk about explicitly in the Bible, but you see these stages occur all throughout the Bible. You look at somebody's life and you see each of these stages I'm about to mention. You look at people throughout history, and I think even tonight you can start identifying those who are young and those who are old. You can start to identify, yes, I realize I'm in this stage of the Christian life and I'm in that stage of the Christian life. I want to give you immediately some recommended resources. We're actually going to be reading... um, We're going to be reading Eternity is Now in Session. When you are leaving tonight, you'll be handed this book. I want to encourage you. We're actually reading, having you read the first half of this book. However, the last half is literally these four stages we're going to be talking about tonight. So that's a helpful resource. A book I'm currently reading right now, if you're interested. Again, I probably should share these resources at the end because then you would know if you're interested or not. Um, But there's this book I'm really loving right now called Mansions of the Heart. And what we have here is Teresa. She is a Christian mystic in the 1500s. What's amazing, tonight I'm going to really reference these as stages of the Christian life. You go from one stage to the next stage of Christian maturity. This, this book talks about, it's an analysis of, of St. Teresa. And with Teresa, she actually didn't describe them as stages. And maybe this is more helpful for you. She described them as mansions that we live in. And so when you first get saved, you are in a mansion. But then as you develop in Christian maturity, you move to the next mansion of maturity. I think the reason she calls it mansion, again, I I hope you'll just stay with me. This will all make sense. But at the end of the day, I think tonight I'm going to mention four stages. And maybe there's been times where you feel like you've experienced each of those stages. But at the end of the day, there is one of them that is like a house that you're living in. Does that make sense? Like one of these stages you're actually in, even though you've dabbled and you've visited some of the other mansions before. Okay. And so what's actually helpful about this tonight, we're going to look at, there's actually four stages. We, this is something that has been, I didn't make this up. This is what Christian history has taught. But what's helpful about Teresa, if this is something that captivates you, she actually thinks there's seven stages, which is the number of perfection. So, um, but I didn't want to overwhelm you tonight. Plus, I just started reading this yesterday. I didn't know. Okay, so uh, that's the truth to that. Um, and I'll mention the other resources as we continue to go on. Stage theory has lost popularity. How many of you have heard of stage theory before, like stages to the Christian life? Raise your hand. Awesome. Good. That's encouraging. So I want us to go through it. And really, the way to look at it is when you become to faith in Jesus, you have to realize that it's just beginning. Coming to Jesus, I had a professor said it's like opening the door into the kingdom. So coming to Jesus, having the salvation experience is incredible. And you can't skip that stage. But what's so assuring to all of us is there are so many more steps to take. And we can kind of start to get really discontent with the church if we think all this whole thing is just about getting saved. Because then we're like, I'm kind of bored. 
right? Have you ever felt bored in your Christian faith? These stages have been like eye-opening for me to realize there is so much more I have to go. And I realize I will never get through it in this lifetime. But I'm going to try as much as I can while I'm here on earth. In Psalm 23, we really see this beautiful picture of King David. And he's saying, with the Lord, you can have a life without lack, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What I want us to look at tonight is there are different stages to us understanding that reality, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so what we're going to look at again is the first, there are four stages, but two halves. So you have the first two stages are in the first half of your spiritual life, and the second two stages are in the second half of the spiritual life. So first half of spiritual life is this. Your first half of your spiritual life is you pursue a life without lack by leaning into your longings. In other words, you come to faith and some of the questions you immediately ask, what is my purpose? What on earth am I here for? That was a best-selling book for a reason, Purpose Driven Life. Like the younger brother, we all struggle thinking, what is my purpose on earth? And we're willing to spend anything forego any relationship in order to find that. And the beautiful thing, in the first half of our spiritual life, God starts to show us what that purpose is. This is something that younger people, if you were like, I'm not going to put a number on it. I'm getting wise, right? Younger people, you know, like 60 and under, amen. But younger people really struggle with this question. What is my purpose? And I think we, we see that. That is a huge need. And as a pastor, I'm always trying to think, how can I show them? And what it is, is we have to, as pastors, as Christians, help people and say, hey, God created you for certain longings. You have to realize that the Lord alone is the one who provides those longings for your life. Right? So this is how I would define all of the first half of your spiritual life. And much of your Christian life, most likely, there's a lot of people in this room that are still just here. I'm still trying to figure out my purpose. I'm still trying to figure out what are the longings God has put in my heart and how am I supposed to put that into action and how am I supposed to change the world, right? So what, this is what we have with stage one. Throughout Christian history, people have called it the awakening moment. Stage one is awakening. Now, this is my spin on it. What does that mean? Awakening means there is a time in your life where you are redeemed from a pointless life to a purpose in life. This is salvation, this is realizing, wow, I am like the younger brother. Maybe you're like the older brother, but you're like the younger brother running after all the things of this world. And finally, the light bulb turns on. Wow, Jesus is sufficient. I no longer have a pointless life. What we have today is kind of two competing worldviews outside of the Christian worldview. Number one is like secular humanism. This is anti-religion. And the thing that's really troubling about secular humanism worldview is it does... I mean, for some people, and I, I could kind of relate, it sounds nice. It sounds like, oh, okay, I can see where you're coming from. But the reality is with secular humanism, because there is no God, we are all just molecules. And molecules don't have a purpose. If you weren't created by a creator, you will always wrestle with the fact that you don't have a created intended purpose for your life. And that is why I believe we are in a generation of depression. Because we don't have any hope. We're simply molecules. How depressing is that? And so we have an opportunity as Christians to shout to the world, there is a purpose, there is a plan for your life. God created you. 
right? He knew you in your mother's womb. He had a plan for you. And this is a message of hope, and we're praying that we as a church lead the way in bringing so many people to that awakening moment. Others have the older brother story where you grew up in church your whole life and it became a religious duty and your way, your purpose was to work harder and do more. And so that actually leads to a pointless life because you realize that you're not very good at that. You get really depressed. But thankfully, grace steps in and you have what we call a conversion experience where God opens your eyes to see what your life is really about, and it clicks that these longings were created by the Lord himself, and they could only be fulfilled by the Lord himself. You with me? Now, here's, some people have pushback on this, but I believe this conversion experience, this stage one awakening can happen in an instant, but I also believe sometimes for some people, it happens over decades. Slowly allowing God to work in your life. So I would encourage you, if you are here and you haven't actually made that commitment, tonight is the perfect night to do that, to have this awakening experience and realize that Jesus loves you, has died on the cross for you, has redeemed you, all these things. Now, another way to call this is regeneration or rebirth. Jesus says you must be born again. This is the awakening moment, and it's when we encounter the gospel of Jesus, right? And so we're actually looking next session, we're going in detail. What is the gospel? How do we present that to our friends? Pastor Billy does a lot on Tuesday nights, um, once a month, on how to, how to share your faith. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about that, so it's important for us to know. But here's some things we learn when we're in that stage, and here's what's troubling for me, though. Some of us never grow out of this stage. And you're kind of discontent with the things of God. Your awakening moment was incredible, but you don't go any further. And I have realized a big part of my burden as at our church and my burden as a pastor is I need to do everything I can to provide a roadmap to show you this is just beginning. And you can't do this alone. But here's some things we learned in that stage. Number one, God's redemption is far greater than our regret. You get to walk in forgiveness for the first time in your life. You don't have shame. You're able to walk in these things. Now, does this mean you completely feel free? No. And we'll talk about that as you go through more and more stages. You realize how depraved you really are and you actually experience forgiveness in a more deeper, profound way. But this is kind of the greatest thing. You just talk a lot about forgiveness because you can't believe you were forgiven. The next thing you learn in this stage is life without lack is only found in the Lord. You realize that there's a greater purpose in your life than living for the nine to five and with the occasional vacation. God created you for a unique purpose and plan, so you're redeemed, you are awakened to realize you don't need to have a pointless life. God created you for a purpose, and you surrender to him to get that. Some churches, some of us, we think that is the Christian life. I'm here to bring you some encouragement. It's just beginning, and it actually gets that much better. This is stage two, what we have in Christian history. A lot of people called it purgation. What does that mean? Exactly. That's where we're going to rephrase it. Um, There's a movie called The Purge. Maybe that'll help you. Uh, But purgation, purging yourself from sins. Again, I want us to realize a lot of us find ourselves stuck in one of these stages. And I would argue, from my experience and learning from other people, it seems like the American church never fully gets past this stage. This, what does this stage look like? The way I define it, and it's a beautiful thing, we are releasing disordered desires 
to feast on deeper desires. It's this process in life where you realize, oh, the Christian faith isn't against desires. God just has better desires for you than you know. Right? So, so it's not that, oh, I, sin is the best thing in the world, but God doesn't want me to do it. It's sin actually isn't even that good for me. And you slowly start to learn that. I love it. John Ortberg, in this book you're about to read, in page 100, he says, God doesn't hate sin because he's anti-pleasure. He invented pleasure. <clears throat> he hates sin because it promises so much and offers so little. And in this stage, the honeymoon phase is kind of over in your Christian faith, and you realize you have to lean into your deeper desires. You realize that this kind of takes a lot of work, but it's worth the journey of following. But what's really scary about this journey is sometimes we make our whole life just about getting rid of sins, and we forget that really all of this, though, is about the Savior and enjoying Jesus. Anybody fall into that trap? It's just every day is, whether, oh, I messed up again. Imagine if we actually changed the way we looked at it all and instead we woke up saying, okay, I'm going to love you today, God. Because when we love God, it actually helps with a lot of those actions rather than waking up, okay, God, I won't mess up today. That's the wrong way to start your day. So in purgation, it's realizing it's not this gospel of sin management. God didn't save you just for you to make sure you don't mess up ever again. There's something deeper, which we're going to look at in the next few stages. But what does these stages look like? Like within purgation, I think there's four levels to it. Number one is you work on overt sins. When you first get saved, you get rid of some sins right away, right? So some of you, um, I mean, we were just in Malaysia. They have to literally get rid of idolatry. They have idols in their house. The first thing they do is they get rid of all the idols. Some of us, it's like, okay, I can no longer be in this adulterous relationship. Like it's these huge overt sins. Everyone knows it's a sin. And this is initially what God does. And in his grace, oftentimes, God just removes it. It's not even hard. You just realize Jesus is better and great. Some of us, though, it's a journey that you have to fight the rest of your life. But what's the second layer? The second layer is, okay, now in purgation, what God calls us to do is to get rid of overt sin, those really big glaring sins that everyone kind of realizes a sin. The second layer is sins that are still socially acceptable. So your non-Christian friends don't think it's a problem at all, but you realize the Bible is calling you to something more. Even something as simple as gossip, God in this stage wants to work that out of you. Something as simple as materialism, none of your non-Christian friends will be bothered that you're a materialist, but God is calling you to something deeper, right? See how this is like that next level of purgation? I want us to remember none of this is uh, possible on our own. First of all, we need God, but we need community to get through these things. But those are kind of the things. Still socially acceptable. A lot of what we do with our sexuality is in this category. We have to sacrifice. We have to live to what God has called us to. But still, society will be like, no, you don't have to change. This is the third level. And I think a lot of us stay stuck here. Sins that are invisible to other people. This is where we grow most discouraged. Why? Because we don't let other people in. We don't ask people for prayer in this. We don't get honest. We don't realize that God actually has given us ways to get through this. Here in sins that are invisible to others, these are addictions that are really hard to overcome. This is things you do when people aren't looking. This is the motivation behind your actions. Why are you doing those good things? Yet you realize maybe you actually, you're not doing it because you love Jesus. You're just doing all these things because you love yourself. Being a pastor is a scary position to be in. You can really do a lot for yourself, right? All those sorts of things. Here's the last layer. 
So we have overt sins, socially acceptable sins, sins that are invisible to others. The last layer is the, the way we cope with brokenness. So we start to finally get rid of any reliance on anything outside of Jesus, like ice cream. Amen? Like we start to realize, oh, I need to pray to you, God, and ask for grace rather than just go and watch a movie. Like even stuff like that, you start to realize, I got to get rid of some of these things. This makes sense so far. So some of us, I hope a lot of your Christian life, like I want you to realize this might be the stage you're in and we want to help you in this stage. There's so many, man, the amount of young people I talk to, yeah, they're saved, but man, they have this addiction, they have this sin, they just can't seem to grow. There are things we can do, there are processes to go through, except like leaning into God's grace to help. What are some things we learn in the stage? One of my favorite quotes of all time is by Dallas Willard, which you just read his book. He might have even said it within those first 35 pages. He says, but then I kind of stole it and did different things with it. But he says, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. I love that. It's like my favorite line of all time. But so I've kind of rolled with that. What are some things we learned in this stage? Grace is not opposed to contrition, it's opposed to condemnation. Oh, if we all just learn what that actually means. Now I'm just getting a bunch of waters. How cool is this? So what is contrition? Thank you. Contrition actually means remorse. Like it means like you actually are sorry for your sin. Like you are horrified that you have sinned against man, sinned against yourself, sinned against most importantly God. Right? So grace is not opposed to contrition. There needs to be this repentance. And you realize in purgation, you're learning how to repent more and more. But here's what's hard about our culture. We don't believe in sin. We just believe in issues. Right? Like, oh, I just have problems. I don't have sin. So we don't go to pastors, we go to therapists, and I'm all for therapists, but that's not the spiritual leader you probably need in your life, unless it's a Christian therapist, shout out to them. But you know what I'm saying? We just try to medically resolve all these things. We have to realize though, some of us, especially those who lean into the older brother, feeling condemned is not how you are forgiven. Beating yourself up is not how you experience grace. Jesus was beat up on the cross for us so that we don't have to beat up ourselves, Amen. right? So there's a difference between contrition and condemnation. The last thing is grace is not opposed to practice. It is opposed to performance. This has been so life-giving for our church. It's this, this whole realization that we can either try to approach this Christian life as trying, like as I have never ran before, but I just heard a sermon about this, so I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. You will not run a marathon tomorrow if you haven't trained, amen? amen. But tomorrow, you can maybe, day one, no Krispy Kreme, all right? And then day two, run to the water cooler. Day three, you know what I'm saying? Like it's this slow process. You have to realize God has grace for you. In purging your sin, God is not expecting you tomorrow to be perfect. Oh, there's so much grace in that. But we can train. So you know what, God? I'm terrible at prayer. Instead of tomorrow declaring I'm going to pray for four hours, I'm going to pray for four minutes, and I'm going to see how it goes. But four minutes is a whole lot better than zero. So I'm going to start somewhere, realizing that, that there's grace in purging these sins. God is patient with us. Don't compare your journey. Don't compare, oh, but he's already so much ahead of me. Now, here's the next part. I really think that this second half of spiritual life is greatly ignored. Now, I realize probably because I'm younger, it's not something I think about often. So maybe... Um, Maybe those of you who are older in this room, you have no problem with this, but I know that we live in a first half-life culture. We don't like talking about death. We don't like talking about passing the baton. 
the only thing we like talking about is retirement, right? To go have fun. But we don't like thinking about the last half of your life. And this is the same spiritually. Our culture runs from this as much as possible. There's a reason why we have this thing called midlife crisis. We have a lot of motorcycle people in this room. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> All right. Um, my wife won't let me get one yet. Um, but, but honestly, like for me, even those of us who are young in this room, I desperately want to start leaning into this because I don't want to be somebody who's fighting against reality. Like I want to gracefully welcome in this new stage of life. I remember, um, anybody ever watched Sister, Sister? Remember that show? Yeah, so I remember, there's, it's so weird. There's this episode that stuck in my mind, Uncle Ray, um, and then you have Aunt Lisa, is that the, yeah. And so Lisa was like trying to be all young and Uncle Ray's like, I love getting old. Like I love reading books and sitting in the spa. And I remember as a seven year old, I resonated with that. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm gonna be old and just read all the time. Like it just sounded beautiful to me. <laughs> But I really do want to be this person that accepts that. And here's the core identity of us in the second half of spiritual life. And I think a lot of us in our discipleship to Jesus, we need to lean into this more. So your first half of your spiritual life, a lot of this when you're young, before midlife crisis, right? Like all this stuff, you were just leaning into your longings. God created you for a purpose. You can change the world. And God gives you passion and energy to be able to do those things. But I hear things start to slow down, right? You, you get a whole lot more sore from the day before. There's, there's a lot of things you realize, oh, I'm kind of slowing down here. And in this second half of your spiritual life, we pursue a life without lack by leaning into our limitations. First half of life is what are my longings? But now you have that figured out. But now you start to realize, I can't change the world alone. You know what? These kids, there's something in them. I need to pour my life into people around me. I am so finite, but if I invest in a lot more people, I'm not as limited anymore. I can lean into my limitations and realize I don't need my name on the billboard. It's King Jesus that will always be remembered. So I'm going to forget my ego that I just spent my whole first life building up. <laughs> and I'm going to let it go and really be a champion for other people around me. I think we desperately are missing this in the church world today. And even, like, I'm thinking as a church planter, I've never heard a strategy where they say, we're going to reach old people. <laughs> right? It's always, we're going to reach families, young families, because that looks better. But I, I'm thinking, is that because we're such a first half of life culture and all the marketing, everything is about that young family? But there's still so much value in the 90-year-old. What if we poured more into them? Because guess what? They are going to pour more into us. So, like, for me, I just want to say I struggle. I, I think I will always, I mean, I'll, I will get old. But right now, I am struggling with the second half of spiritual life. And the thing that I'm embarrassed to say, I'm still scared of death. I don't want to die. I still feel like I got things to do. Like, I feel like I'm still leaning into my longings. But as a pastor, I'm realizing I need to get quicker. I need to get better at realizing for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's, like, been my own spiritual journey I'm in right now. And so this is something I would say I'm really wrestling to get into fully into stage three. And let me just also say, I don't think you have to, you're not allowed in stage three until you're 45 or whatever. This isn't an age thing. This is a spiritual thing, right? And so I don't want us to get caught up in that. But here's stage three. Throughout Christian history, you called it the stage of illumination. The light bulb turns on. 
you, start, you actually start to realize even more what your purpose is, and it actually doesn't have as much to do with you as you thought. This, the way I describe this stage, is you are redeemed from an impressive life to an empowering life. You don't, you know what? I don't need to impress people anymore. I just need to empower them. I don't care if you remember my name. I want you to remember Jesus' name. So we begin to actually exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in this stage. This is crazy. When a trouble comes your way, you can be like that man in Psalm 112, where trouble comes and he doesn't fear where he's patient in the midst of troubles, where he gladly sacrifices for the cause of Christ. I want to be that man. I want us to have a church of people who are like this. You start to really lean into that reality that Jesus is a beautiful savior and a brilliant teacher, like we talked about tonight in the great, great omission, that he actually has the good life and the good life really is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You don't just say that out loud, but in this stage of life, you actually wholeheartedly believe that. That's really one of the things I love about my, my papa. Towards the end of his life, he always says, if you're happy, I'm happy. Like he said that every day I saw him. I don't know if I live that way right now. If I'm happy, I'm happy. You know what I'm saying? Forget you. <laughs> but I want to live where it's like, I really want to think like if you're joyful, then I'm joyful. Like I want to live for others. And I'm really struggling with this in my discipleship. And I just say that to you, like we're all in progress. But life really is about loving God and loving others. Let me get through this. So some things we learn in the stage. Number one, God will do what he can do when you realize your dreams are not about you. When I was 13, I, I surrendered my life to the ministries. I was so excited. And God gave me a vision. The preacher was preaching about Elijah standing up, you know, Mount Carmel declaring the glory of God to people who are afraid to show their face, right? And I got a vision that I was on this stage with people of my generation, and I was leading tons of people to Jesus. You know what's so funny? I love that vision because I was on the stage for years. Look at me. I had a really cool microphone. Like, I was above everybody. And I'm starting to realize the only reason that vision was powerful was because there was people in the audience. That's right. Like, the only reason that is a beautiful vision is because it's an opportunity to empower other people, not the fact that I was on a stage, right? So it's leaning into those limitations, realizing it's actually like Joseph. Like, I actually think he was a punk by saying, hey, y'all got to worship me. Look, Code of Many Colors guy, right? He realized, oh, the way I, I'm a leader is by serving. But that's another sermon. I can't preach it yet. Okay, so... The other thing we learn is true faith keeps sowing even when nothing seems to be growing. How many of us in our Christian life, we're only doing things to get an applause? How many things in our Christian life, if, if you were in stage three, you do things, you sow gospel seeds even if they constantly reject you? I want to be that person. I want us to be a people, apprentices of Jesus who are like that, where we are not in this for the results. We're in this because we're obedient to Jesus, and it's exactly what he told us to do. We're leaving the results up to him. This is stage four. If you're in this stage, I really want to get to know you. This is called union. This is that really nice 85-year-old lady who just looks a whole lot like Jesus and says she prayed for you three hours, and you actually believe her, right? 
By the way, just being old doesn't mean you will be in this stage of union. I've met some really mean, nasty 85-year-old ladies. Amen? So that's actually to actually kind of as a warning and an encouragement that we won't progress these stages just by getting older. So many people die just in stage one. But I do think stage four, even stage three, does take time. You can't just be like, I'm going to work on it really hard this summer. I'm going to skip to stage four. That's just not going to work. You have a lot of crying in your future, right? God has a lot of just putting you through a lot of disasters. But what does this one look like? Releasing what's interesting and feasting on what's integrating. You realize your Christian life, you're not in it just because, oh, I, I, I just want to do things that aren't boring. You start to realize, you know what, I'm going to do the boring things because I realize, God, that you speak in the boring. That you, are, you provide miracles in the midst of the mundane. That I'm going to push through these things, even though I feel like I'm tired, but I know that there's something at the end of this. So I'm going to keep pursuing you. So that's integrating. What's integrating mean? Where all of life is all of Jesus. Where everything oozes out the kingdom. So sin, in this stage, sin becomes the exception rather than the rule. Oh, I can't wait for that. It's actually like when you wake up, you think of God. When you eat, you're thinking of God. When you go to sleep, you're meditating on his goodness. I want that. This means you let go of anything that breaks communion with the Father. You have no interest in gossiping. You have no interest in comparison, comparison, comparing. You have no interest in those things at all because you know it's not integrating. You have that like John 15 through 17 life. John 15, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Some things to know just about stage theory in general. Number one, this isn't linear. In other words, it's not like, okay, now that you've checked off stage one, you'll never go back. Or now that you're at stage three, you'll never have to go to stage two. Realize that it's really a journey. That's why I like the imagery of, of Teresa of Avela. I think that's how you pronounce it, but she describes them as mansions. You can visit and vacation in different mansions, but at the end of the day, you always go and come back to your home. So you have to realize that maybe right now you're in like a stage four, really cool. You're vibing with the Holy Spirit. Like you're thinking all about Jesus right now. You'll come back to stage two and we'll be glad to greet you when you come back, right? So we have to realize that it's not linear, okay? The next thing is this doesn't equate to levels in heaven. Oh, I'm stage three, so I got level three in heaven. That's not what we preach here at all. It does mean, though, I think you'll have a lot more joy on this earth the further in you'll get, and you'll be able to make more of an impact for the kingdom the further you get. But this does not equate levels in heaven. I want to make sure you know that. Another thing, this isn't a competition. Like Awana is all the badges. Like, what level are you? You know, that's not what we're doing here. I had all the badges. I was very, I was a great Pharisee. Um, I even put in my thing, I was like, Trey, this is stupid. Don't do it. But I'm going to say it out loud now. I said, it isn't cute to boast of your pursuit, okay? It, nobody wants to know like how great you are. That means you're actually probably at stage one. If you're like, I'm stage four, now I know you're not, okay? Because you just bragged that you were, right? So that is not what it is at all. But here's the last, most important, I think, encouragement. Jesus may not be calling you to the next stage, but he's certainly calling you to a next step. And our apprenticeship to Jesus, again, that's why I like the imagery, instead of stages, this mansion, Mansions have many rooms, and God is putting us through many next steps within each stage. And so don't get overwhelmed thinking, i got to reach this next stage. Really ask Jesus tonight, and get honest tonight, and think, God, what is my next step? For some of us, it is baptism. 
For some of us, it is to increase our prayer life. It is to actually open up our hearts and confess in a small group. It's to lean into community. It is fasting. It is feasting. It's meditation. It's giving. It's empowering. It's memorizing scripture. It's meditation. All these things. There's so many next steps. And I love that there's not a list of next steps, like all 18,000 of them, because they're all unique to you. We're going to talk about that um, in two sessions from now. But God, what I love with God is that you, there's always a next step to take. There's always a journey. And if you're bored with your faith, it's your fault, not his. Right? And I think we get bored is when we start, when we stop taking those next steps and we think, we figure this whole thing out. Friends, there are more mansions that you haven't even visited yet. This Christian life is so full of joy and I'm so grateful. I'm pumped that I, I feel like I'm just getting started. And I love that the rest of my life, I'm going to keep visiting these mansions and hopefully dwelling in the next one and the next one and the next one. And most importantly, bringing other people along the way with me. 